you've successfully snatched mail pouches containing hundreds of thousands of dollars, or so you think. The cops are closing in, so what do you do? If your response is, spend it all on airplanes, you and the subject of today's story would be on the same page. Today we're talking about Carl Stieler, the thrill-seeking thief. I'm Tommy Henry, and this is the Chicago History Podcast. I'm often asked how I decide what stories to do. Sometimes it's obvious. Navy Pier, Soldier Field, the origins of the Chicago hot dog, stuff people talk about day in and day out, about which listeners want to learn more. Sometimes I see something in an old newspaper while I'm researching something unrelated, which is the case with today's story about Carl Stieler. Carl Stieler Jr. was born in Germany in March of 1898 to Carl and Matilda Stieler. The Stieler family emigrated to the United States eight and a half years later, arriving in New York City aboard the Kaiser Wilhelm in October of 1907. After a brief stay in Tennessee, the family eventually settled in Chicago. On June 23, 1918, shortly after his 20th birthday, Carl Jr. enlisted in the U.S. Army during World War I, departing New York on the transport Anchises in July of 1918 for England. Stieler served in the 498th Aero Squadron in France, but he wasn't a pilot. He worked with the ground crew. More on that in a bit. Stieler was released from service to his country on January 27, 1919, two months after the end of the First World War. Before the end of the year, Carl would be involved with one of the biggest heists in the Chicago area in the late 1910s. Thirty-one-year-old John S. Vida was working as an employee of the Registry Division of the Chicago Post Office when he had an idea. Vida noticed that every Thursday, a registered package consigned to the Bank of Whiting, Indiana, from the Federal Reserve Bank of Chicago, went through the post office and traveled on the Illinois Central Railroad to the Bank of Whiting, just over the Illinois border. This money, usually close to $450,000, was to cover the payroll at the Standard Oil Refinery. According to Vida, one day he noticed one of the packages was torn and he could see it contained money. With dollar signs in his eyes, he prepared to pull off a heist with the help of three friends. Leo Filipkowski was a 21-year-old garage owner living at 2136 North Haddon Avenue in Chicago's Ukrainian village. His brother Walter was just 17 years old. John Vida, the mastermind of the crime, there are big finger quotes around mastermind, lived at 1331 North Ashland Avenue, about a mile from the brothers. The third member of the trio, Carl Stieler. On September 18, 1919, John Vida prepared two mail sacks, identical to the ones used for the standard oil payroll, and filled them with scrap paper. Vida then gave the sacks to his three pals, who then headed to the Whiting train depot. As the money sacks were being unloaded, the thieves waited until no one was looking and swapped the dummy sacks for the ones filled with money, making off with $246,000, slightly more than $4 million in today's value. The male bandits then divvied up the cash. The Filipkowski brothers would share $113,130, 
John Vita received $50,505, and Carl Steeler Jr. netted $45,000. Back in Whiting, it wasn't long before the mail sacks were opened, the worthless scrap paper was discovered, and the hunt was on for the thieves. Flush with cash, two of the men involved in the heist rushed out to impress their girlfriends with rings. Carl Steeler spent $1,200, nearly $21,000 in today's money, on the one he bought for his gal, Bessie Jassiak, who lived at 1629 West Julian Street. Bessie reportedly knew of the source of the cash Steeler used. Leo Filipkowski spent a more modest amount of $265, about $4,600 adjusted for inflation, for a ring for Miss Clara Zimkowski of 1500 West Division Street. Clara was the daughter of the late John Zimkowski, a former alderman. There is a bit of murkiness regarding the full actions of the Filipkowski brothers that afternoon after committing the robbery and whiting. Some newspapers reported that the two robbed a saloon of $500, but really, after the huge score at the train depot, I find it hard to believe they would risk it. After reading all the accounts I could get my hands on, here's what I think happened. Clara Zimkowski, who had received the ring from Leo Filipkowski, excitedly showed her parents, who weren't as thrilled with the news as Clara hoped. Quote, Don't go with Leo, newspapers reported Clara's mother telling her. He's a gambler. As Clara was having the ring sized, she became aware of the source of Leo's newfound money. Clara planned to return the ring to Leo, but her mother urged her to turn it into police and tell them everything she knew, which she did. Now that they had the names of two potential subjects, Chicago policemen tracked down Leo Filipkowski, claiming he fit the description of a man suspected of holding up a saloon. In his pocket, they found a wrapper for $20,000 in bills. Filipkowski admitted to the cops that he had $90,000 back at his house and offered it to the policemen if they would just let him go. They did not. This is the time I have to stop to say the research on this episode was made even more difficult as newspapers back in the day chose a variety of ways to spell the names of those involved especially anyone with a Polish name. It would seem that a city with as large a Polish population as Chicago had in the late 1910s and early 1920s, writers would have gotten the hang of those spellings, but alas, not so much. I should also mention that when I read the breakdown of the split, the total was not quite $209,000. There was a lot of back and forth about the money in this story, including an allegation that Chicago police may have pocketed $20,000. The story behind the robbery and the money, as told by the thieves, kept changing throughout the early days of the investigation. Sure, they stole the $234,000, but according to the men on the way back to Chicago, their car broke down in Englewood on Chicago's south side, roughly 63rd and Halsted. They were forced to abandon their vehicle and most of the loot returning to the city with just $93,620. Sure. After finding roughly $90,000, Leo Filipkowski had squirreled away. Police arrested the Filipkowski brothers and John Vida and set to tracking down the rest of the loot. 
Two safety deposit boxes at the Northwestern State Bank at North and Milwaukee Avenues were raided. One that was rented by Walter Filipkowski the day after the theft. The other, in the Filipkowski boy's mother's name, contained just $2,000. Although Mrs. Filipkowski claimed the money was hers, the police seized it anyway. Another $5,000 was found at the home of John Vida. Vida's wife, Rose, was arrested at the time of the money's discovery. Within days, more money turned up. In an article in Wisconsin's Kenosha News titled, Buried Booty is Recovered by Police, authorities dug up $42,500 on a farm owned by John Vida's father in Suamico, Wisconsin, about 10 miles north of Green Bay. The cash was wrapped in strips of lace curtains, calico skirts, and rags in packages of $5,000 and lesser sums. Those bundles were stuffed into a large milk can, and if you don't know what one of those looks like, congrats, you're young, and then buried in a trench on the elder Vita's farm, which the authorities were able to help with the help of Vita. Authorities later claimed they intercepted a letter written in Polish from the younger Vita to his father in Wisconsin. That letter provided a clue to the money being on the farm in Wisconsin. One of the three men now under arrest implicated Carl Stieler as the fourth member of the robbery, but by then, Carl and his gal Bessie skipped town, heading to Wisconsin for a night, then coming back to Chicago to buy a car, then traveling west to sunnier climes and fewer cops looking for them. Arriving in Los Angeles, California, Stieler bought Bessie jewelry and spent a large sum of his ill-gotten loot on new clothing for both of them. Then... Steeler made an honest woman of Bessie. Quote, When we got there, the first thing we did was get married, Steeler said later. I got the license under my correct name, and I gave the clerk a $20 bill. I had all my pockets full of money and a lot in a handbag. After rest at Bear Lake, we moved back to Los Angeles and rented a small flat. While the newlyweds were enjoying the West Coast, things weren't quite as nice for the other three thieves. As the crime occurred in Indiana and involved mail theft, the two Filipkowskis and John Vida were tried in federal court in Indianapolis in December of 1919, less than three months after the crime. All three pleaded guilty to that crime. Vida was sentenced to four years imprisonment in Atlanta. Possibly due to his age, 17-year-old Walter Filipkowski was sentenced to serve just one year and a day, and Leo Filipkowski was handed a three-year term. News articles of the trio sentencing made no mention of Carl Stieler. Back in Los Angeles, Carl Stieler pursued his passion for being airborne, enrolling in the Sid Chaplin School of Flying. Now, if you're wondering whether Sid Chaplin is any relation to that other chaplain about whom I've spoken, the answer is yes. Sid, spelled with a Y, Chaplin is Charlie's older by four years half-brother. Sid Chaplin came to America and had some success as an actor. He also started the first privately owned airlines, the Sid Chaplin Airline Corporation, that had much fanfare when announced in 1919, but went bust within a year. 
But according to the website charliechaplin.com, Charlie Chaplin always credited his brother Sidney for most of his professional and financial success. It was Sidney Chaplin who negotiated Charlie Chaplin's record-setting million-dollar deal with First National Pictures in 1917, and Sidney helped create United Artists Pictures. I should point out that being a pilot around this time did not take much training. It was all super loose, nearly unregulated, and resulted in a fair number of crashes and deaths. There is a Chicago History Podcast episode about Chicago's early days of flying in the works. Back to Carl. Carl Steeler's time with the Chaplin School of Flying reads as exhilarating, scary, maybe a little of all the above. About Chaplin, Steeler later said, quote, I paid $25,000 just with him. I had three airplanes and two of them crashed. Both were broken to splinters, but I only got a scratch. End quote. During one of those accidents, Carl's plane reportedly fell 200 feet. After opportunities dried up for Carl and Bessie in Los Angeles, he bought one more plane and headed to Arizona, New Mexico, and Texas giving flying lessons. Once money ran low, Carl sold that plane for about a quarter of what it cost. Carl and Bessie then traveled to Memphis, then Jackson, Tennessee, where he was paid $40, that's about $600 in today's value, for doing aerial stunts. They ended up in Louisville, Kentucky, where Bessie took in laundry and cleaned floors to help make ends meet. Even with sporadic flying jobs and Bessie's odd jobs, the couple was unable to keep up with expenses and decided to head back to Chicago in October of 1921. Returning to his parents' home, Carl told his dad of his adventures on the road and admitted he was ready to turn himself in. His father called the police to tell them Carl was finally willing to face the consequences. Even after all the time away from family and the chaos of being on the run, Bessie was so devoted to Carl that as he was being locked up, she asked if she could be locked up with him. While Carl was in jail, he told a reporter from the Chicago Daily News that it was his desire to take to the skies that led him into a life of crime. Quote, I wanted to fly, he said. That's the rock-bottom truth of the whole thing. If I had had even one chance to go up while I was in the Army, it might have been different. You can't figure how it is unless you've been there, seeing the pilots go up every day and sticking around on the ground yourself. I guess I got to be what you might call an airbug. I couldn't get up interest in anything else. After I got out, the only thing that seemed worthwhile to me was to be a pilot and to have a plane that I could fly wherever I pleased. Steeler paused, listening to the sound of an open automobile engine's putt-putt sound. Grinning sheepishly, he continued. Sounded like a plane, he said. Say, there's a thrill in that. A lot of people will think that I was a boob to spend a lot of the 45 grand I got out of this job on airplanes, but say, the kick I got out of the first joyride was worth it. I guess I ought to be all full of remorse. Steeler stopped for a moment and thought, then shook his head. No, I ain't. It was the first crooked deal I ever pulled in my life. I knew I'd be caught sooner or later, figured on it all along, but it was the one chance to do what I wanted to do fly. I took the chance and now I'm ready to take my medicine. End quote. When asked why he finally decided to give himself up, Carl Steeler hesitated for a moment, then responded, well, I'll tell you, 
I was broke and there was nothing doing in the flying line. And well, I guess I figured I might just as well be in jail as on the ground. It is not lost on me, by the way, that Stieler, pronounced without spin, sounds like Steeler. One newspaper article about Carl noted that he, quote, kept to his right name, end quote. Ouch. After his arraignment, Stieler, accompanied by his wife Bessie, seemed downright defiant, saying, quote, If I hadn't given myself up, the police would never have got me. The police knew I was mixed up with the robbery, but they never saw me in Chicago. It was the same way when we got to Los Angeles. Even when Bessie and I were married under our own names, they didn't get wise. Wherever we went, it was always under our right names. Why, I was pinched for speeding once in Los Angeles, and in the courtroom where they find me, my picture with a reward under it was hanging on the wall, and they never recognized me. Carl Steeler kept a record of his expenses, he claimed, against the time when federal agents might get him. The list included one airplane, $9,600, one airplane, $4,500, one airplane without motor, $2,000, one airplane motor, $6,250, installing motor, $600, one automobile, $1,700, organizing airplane company, $1,250, jewelry for wife, $200, Living and traveling expenses, $13,400. After all his adventures, it was time for Carl Stieler to pay for his crimes. Of course, all the money was gone, but in October of 1921, authorities were still able to sentence him to three years in the federal penitentiary at Fort Leavenworth, Kansas. The 1930 census records show Carl and Bessie living at 4307 North Lincoln Avenue in Chicago, with Carl's profession listed as chauffeur. Ten years later, the Steelers lived at 1655 North Elston Avenue, with Bessie working part-time at a print shop and Carl making a living as a mechanic. Roughly two years after this, Carl and Bessie headed west again, moving into a home on 3rd Street in Palo Alto, California. Sadly, Bessie's time in the Golden State ended abruptly when she died suddenly at the age of 43. When Carl Steeler got remarried fewer than six months later, in November of 1946, this time to a woman 15 years his junior named Teresa DePaul, Carl Steeler became a stepfather to his new bride's son, Robert. In another sad twist to the story, in early July 1954, Carl Steeler Sr., Carl's dad, who called the police when Carl was ready to turn himself in, died when his car left the road and crashed into a tree in Los Altos, California. Steeler Sr. and his wife Matilda had lived in Santa Clara County for 26 years. Steeler Sr.'s obituary mentions a son named Harry, also of Los Altos, and Carl Jr. of Indiana. Carl's adventures brought him back to the Midwest toward the end of his days to Westville, Indiana, about 42 miles from Whiting, where the mail robbery took place. He died a year and a half later, on December 9, 1981, at the age of 83. His wife Teresa died a little more than seven years after. They are buried next to each other in the Westville Cemetery in LaPorte County. 
There was no mention in Carl's obituary of his previous adventures as a pilot or of his involvement in one of the biggest heists in Chicago of that era. for listening to today's episode about Carl Stieler, the thrill-seeking thief. This episode was written, recorded, and edited by me, Tommy Henry. As always, if you have questions about anything covered today, anything to add or have an idea for a future episode, I'd love to hear about it. Send me an email at chicagohistorypod at gmail.com. I have links to various items related to this episode's subject and others if you'd like to learn more about Chicago's amazing history. Anything ordered through those links, not just the items listed, may earn a small commission for the podcast and help offset production costs at no cost to you. Check out the Chicago History Podcast Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram pages for articles and pictures related to this episode and past episodes posted throughout the week. The original art for the Chicago History Podcast used on the social media pages was created by John K. Schneider. Sincerely, thanks, Johnny. You can be found at AngelEyesArtJKS on Instagram or via email at AngelEyesArtJKS at gmail.com. I will be back soon with more stories from Chicago's history. Until then, get out and explore when possible. Learn more about whatever city you live in. Stay safe.